Um, we uh, we had a, a broadcast uh, on uh, Alexandria David Neal and her uh, adventures into Tibet in the mid early yeah mid 1920s and we're going we're going to talk about the mysterious and strange toplas uh, the manifestations of spirit entities and living creatures um, but in the middle of that uh, the broadcast took a, a swing to the different and it became sort of a a dedication to my 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 close friend my brother my cousin somebody I've known my whole life that's one of my actually closest friends and it sort of became uh, dedicated to him. So we, we took that we, we took this first section out, and we're just going to play that tonight because uh, um, because it's so close to to losing my friend, and I wanted to do something I've known him my whole life. I love him, and so this is this is for you, Jeff. I think you had a big you had a lot to do with this uh, broadcast because you kind of just kind of climbed in there. <laughs> it wasn't even really ready for it and so i just as as we do on in between stations i just let this go freely the way uh it should go and that's and so here it is and this is dedicated to my my dear friend who just passed away jeff oh I, i'm gonna come back there <laughs> uh, before we head into this um the, the first uh 15 minutes is you know, it was part of our, our normal broadcast, and so I didn't expect that I was going to go into this uh, this uh, dedication to um, to my my dear friend and brother Jeff. Um, so uh, yeah, you just it's just a normal introduction. We go through a few things, and then we go right into um, the, a little bit about about Jeff. So again, uh, I love you, my friend, uh, my brother. Uh, Wherever you are, somehow I got a feeling you're <laughs> um, uh, tapping on my shoulder. Yeah. So um, let's let's uh, let's proceed with this very inter- interesting uh, broadcast. Delta, Echo. Lima, Delta, Echo. This is In Between Stations Radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, USA. Good early morning or late night, depending on where you live on this incredible globe called Earth. Um, yeah. Well, I'm having my own coffee latte. (laughs) I mix it with two bananas. Let's see. uh, And lion's mane mushrooms. And cacao. A nice little plant that chocolate comes from. And then I have a whole line of uh, vitamins I take, supplemental ones. 
I'm not running as much as I used to. I used to run extreme distance, as you probably already know if you listen. And I've toned that down a lot. Nevertheless, I still need things like magnesium for my bones and pro- probiotics for my stomach. You've got to take care of your stomach. This has been connected to a lot of illnesses and diseases and even people dying. So I try to take care of myself a little bit. I have, I have those moments where I eat a lot of trash food. <laughs> Somebody gave me uh, six bottles of orange crush soda, which I'm probably going to end up throwing away because none of my friends, are, most of my friends are pretty health conscious. They're not going to drink them. And I have this one bottle I've been sipping on for a week. <laughs> the carbonation is... Um, pretty much gone and it's pretty gross uh you know it's just it's just sugar water it's carbonated sugar water it used to have caffeine in it but they they don't put it in there anymore it's a coca-cola product i love coca-cola covered that in previous episodes why coca-cola actually has the coca leaf in it they extract the the active ingredient in the coca which uh is given to the pharmaceutical companies in the united states the United States buys a lot of coca leaves. You talk about the problem with cocaine, and most of the cocaine consumption in the world is in the United States. <laughs> I don't like cocaine, uh, and I've talked about this before. I tried it. I had a whole season of construction work where we all participated in using uh, cocaine uh, in California. N- no. I-, I just... It's... It's a, it's a high like you kind of never experienced before and your heart rate goes up, uh, but it, it's not worth it. And I, I've told you my experiences with uh, the coca leaf itself. It's been used for thousands of years in South America. It's, it's, it's just the most wonderful, beautiful plant. It, it actually assists you uh, in oxidation and carrying oxygen in your bloodstream. They're still looking into this. Uh, High-altitude runners these ultra runners that have been in indigenous communities for thousands of years. I mean, that's in, 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 in lieu of the wheel, like we had, had it in the old world, they used their feet and purposely. Um, it was thought by some tribes that eventually the wheel itself would cause the destruction of the world. Yeah, think about that. Because <laughs> they had, and I've talked about this, archaeologists have found hundreds, uh, I, in fact, thousands of our little toys with, with wheels on them that, that was used in all these different tribes all over uh, Mesoamerica and Southwest. But getting to know tribes, and especially these, these running runners that carry the old traditions of the Mesoamerica and Southwestern tribes, they talk about the wheel was forbidden, and that in previous worlds it had been used and would bring about the destruction of, of this world as they term it. Um, and, you know, the various tribes have the fourth world or the fifth world. Some even have the sixth world or the third world. They have different uh, terms for it. But it's basically, from what I understand, a, a whole historical epic. It's a whole passage of time where a complete different reality was taking place. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's this fascinating um, mythology of, of worlds. I think the Hopis, which I know the best because that's where I spend a lot of my time, as you know, have nine worlds. That, that humans in particular are going to have to learn something, or hopefully they will, but it's going to take nine different structures of reality be, before humans 
get it. Or, or in s- some of some of my Hopi friends that uh, are spiritual leaders, uh, they're not so sure humans will get it. I mean, some will. There'll be a small group that will that will finally understand what it means to to be alive and to give and to worship a, a sacred creator in all the processes of life, not just human beings. So uh, in addition to my uh, girlfriend Tiva passing away, now I've had one of my closest childhood friends, and he's remained a friend all these years, just quite suddenly pass away. I did not realize how important this person was and how much I loved them until they were gone. Ours is the kind of family where you don't really just stand up and say, hey, I love you, buddy. <laughs> I mean, it's expressed in other words. You don't, you, don't, you don't just come out, especially if you're male, and say that. I kind of had to learn the opposite just when I got home from the war and had a lot of problems. Uh, I had to learn how to tell people I love them. Uh, and it's it was, it's kind of a difficult step with the way <laughs> culture is in my family, but we there's a strong, powerful love in my family, and this is this this guy was like a, we've had yeah we've had four deaths in the last five years in my family that's just taken it's just taken a lot a lot of people out, and COVID um, my good friend. Uh, I, I think eventually that he became a victim of COVID. He was in the hospital for a long time. I don't know what the what the exact causes of his death were. He died peacefully in his lazy boy chair, propped up there, probably watching the morning news or something, and he just passed away. He was just he was a beautiful person. I knew him my whole life and I'm I I'm really gonna miss him. Um I was going to play one of his favorite songs, but I'm worried that be copyright infringements because the group is um, a little active. Some groups are really active. That Most groups don't care. So we play some of those things, uh, not to make money, but for you to enjoy. And rarely do we play the songs in their entirety. So you, you kind of got to like download the full song or get the album. But he really liked um, Black Sabbath, especially Iron Man. Yeah, we listened to that over and over again. Kind of a cool song. I didn't really appreciate it until several years later because I had to hear the thing like 20 times a day. Old Ozzy singing Iron Man. Got pretty popular when Marvel started making their movie of Iron Man, which is a cool, cool comic book. Now, the movies are so-so, but the comic books are awesome. I've been reading them since I was a kid. Okay. So I'll have another drink of my coffee latte. <laughs> That's chucked full of vitamins. Coffee can be good for you if you don't drink in the extreme. A lot better than candy and pies and you know things that we shouldn't eat. Coffee, if it's if it's if it's taken right and not you know not in the extreme where you're drinking twenty cups a day. Uh, right, Murky? <laughs> yeah. Well, don't point the finger at me. Oh. Okay, all right. I know you don't drink a lot of coffee. Not true, you do. Shut up. Right. Well, whatever you say, Batman. <laughs> yeah. Let's. I, I, I want to play a, a song for my my beautiful friend. I, I I miss you, Jeff. I love you a lot. I, I know you kind of <laughs> kind of listen to the our radio broadcast a little bit. I know sometimes they probably irritated you because <laughs> you've been listening to me your whole life. 
Uh, it's kind of hard for some of my family members because, you know, I, they've been listening to these dialogue for a long time. And, of course, the whole premise of the station. Well, we all know. What, what well, we all know <laughs> only too well that the going on and on of talking sometimes forever is a special art form. You are undisputed champion of. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you, you put up with it. They put up with it. Right. I mean, the whole premise of, of our broadcast is just kind of setting you in the living room and talking to you like, like you're my friend. You are my friends. And uh, just getting a little of my ideas out, especially my experiences with indigenous tribes. And this, uh, this broadcast is going to be about something really interesting called topas. Do you know what topas are? The mid-1920s book... Magic and Mystery in Tibet by Alexandria David Neal. Let's go to a song first. So we're going to go to a song. You know, I, I know the perfect song. In fact, I remember that my friend Jeff liked this this uh, this song. It's, it's one of the really great railroad folk songs from the 1960s. Um, it's, it's a classic. A cool song. Let's go ahead. And, oh, you like it too, Mercury? Yeah, it's a great train song. But that doesn't necessarily mean I like all the stupid trains that go through town every day. Especially when I have to walk the crazy dingo boy gunner by the railroad tracks. But you don't like all the trains going through. <laughs> Especially when you're trying to cross the tracks with right. with Gunner. Yeah. Gunner doesn't like trains, does he? No. Right. I've been arrested by the railroad police uh, and I talked about this before on s- several occasions. Only for running and only because they thought I was a homeless person. Because I run with my this big heavy backpack, often in my street clothes. Because you got to protect your legs and stuff, especially when you run these 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 service roads alongside the railroad tracks. And I'd run with my dog Gunner. And Gunner used to love trains. Never had a problem with him. He he knows about trains. But after we started getting arrested a few times, he didn't like the police. He especially don't don't like their dogs. Gunner does not like the railroad police dogs. And Gunner is a fighting dog if he has to be. He's really a nice dog, but he's had so many bad experiences with dog attacks and people throwing stuff at him. And so he, if he need, if he has to defend me, and this is, you know, this is Gunner in a nutshell. Uh, if, if, if you're just joining us for the first time, Gunner is a stumpy-tailed healer that is half or part dingo. And he came from from Australia. He was shipped in a box to Sedona. A wealthy family bought him. They didn't want him. Yeah. And he is incredibly beautiful, especially when he was younger. I mean, this dog is like... He's primo. He's the, he's the, he's the blue ribbon winner in his, in, his, uh, in his breed. Smart, athletic, strong, powerful, and like I said, extremely intelligent. And... and it was just by luck that my former wife, and you know, she got she actually talked me into giving him because I didn't want another dog. My my dog Aussie had just passed away, and I was really attached to her. She was this amazing border collie, Australian Shepherd. I never figured out which which. She looked like a border collie. I talked about her previous broadcast on on uh, on death. Just a, it was a really hard loss with her. I love, I still love her a lot. I still think she watches over me. So before we uh, get on with our show uh, with uh, Topas and Alexandria David Neal, we're going to play this song dedicated to my dear friend Jeff. 
That's a great song. Uh, I think mid 1960s, late 1960s. No, it was 1972. Oh, 1972. Hmm, a little later than I thought. Arlo Guthrie's just amazingly talented. His dad was <laughs> the great Woody Guthrie. He he inspired Dylan. He inspired huge amount of musicians. He's the he's the folk artist, singer of the Amer- of America, the old America, the one that's fading away, the one that we don't really have too much anymore. Uh, and um, even the son Arlo talks about that a bit. But Woody Guthrie was was the man. And, uh, and, and fading away is, the old America fading away is what this song's all about. And, and Jeff, I know you're not here anymore, um, at least on this, this plane of existence. <laughs> I keep thinking you're playing jokes on me all the time. But when you and I were boys, and you're a little bit older than me, there were still steam trains left. There were, last, there were a few steam trains still left. And there used to be the uh, Sugar Beet uh, factory, which wasn't far from our grandparents' house there in Garland, Utah. And I and Jeff would, would uh, walk across the, the fields and watch these last old steam trains. Because, you know, there were a lot of the diesel trains and the, and the trains we have now were coming online. But there were still some uh, old uh, steam trains in the switchyard there that would haul these sugar beets to be processed into the plant there and made in by you and I sugar. And Jeff was a, was a big kid, even when he was, uh, even when we were just boys in grade school. Jeff was six, seven inches taller than me. He was just a big guy. Strong, powerful. He was a, a a real successful athlete. Won a lot of awards. Went to the World Series in baseball, and he was he was my buddy. When, when we were at my grandparents' house in Garland, that that was my buddy, and he kind of watched out for me. Uh, nobody's gonna mess with Jeff. <laughs> He's just a big kid, powerful, uh, really friendly guy. And carried the tradition of the Thompson line, at least for me. He was a lot like my grandfather. He was well-mannered, um, a tremendous athlete, and, and, and just really a kind person. But, but don't mess with him. He got him mad. But he would, we'd walk across the fields. I think it was about half a mile. <laughs> and, and sometimes he'd have his BB gun, pellet gun. He'd target practice. He's the first person that taught me how to, how to hold a weapon as we call it in the military. I didn't realize all the year, uh, all the years later when I went to war that, that, that those can kill people. That was never Jeff's thing. He, he became an amazing sportsman and hunter and followed a long line and tradition in my family of great, uh, great sportsmen that are fading away. Uh, these are the people that cleaned their guns, made their own ammunition, uh, walked and hunted a uh, game the old way not with all these GPSs and big trailers. and uh, he, He's one of the last of the great sportsmen, and he was taught by my grandfather and my dad's uh, family were all great hunters. Uh, these guys have faded away, and Jeff was the, probably one of the last people left of that long tradition of great sportsmen and hunters. I grew up hunting in that way, not the way they do now. And that, that was one of Jeff's great sorrows was the... The sort of hunting we have now is, is high-tech and computerized and, uh, and people that don't earn the hunt. Jeff did. He knew how to hunt. Anyway, when we were kids, this guy was just amazing. And so we'd walk to the, <laughs> to the switchyards by the, the UNI Sugar Beet Factory uh, and, and watch these last steam, steam trains work. And they're so beautiful. I even think one time, maybe more than that, two or three times, the great, the big boy, the, the Union Pacific big boy came through which is one of the most powerful trains ever made. 
For more than a century, the haunting voice of the Iron Horse echoed across the land. From the eastern seaboard, over the seemingly endless plains and through the western mountains, steam locomotives fused a sprawling landmass into a solid nation. Theirs was a call to dreamers of every age, wafting them from humdrum schoolroom or office to fancied adventures on the high iron. the boy who one day could say he had seen them in action and the thrill of seeing a mammoth engine at work was to be only a happy memory of childhood. Of all the locomotives in the long history of the rails, one of the greatest was called Big Boy, a name by which the world knew an engine that closed a memorable era in western railroading. It was the last of the giants. Uh, the Union Pacific restored uh, one of the big boys, I think 4005. Uh, and, and this train is just so beautiful and fantastic and just really powerful. I mean, the wheels are, are as big as a house on <laughs> these steam trains. They were powerful. So that, that, that would be, I and Jeff would, would sit and watch these. Uh, you know, I don't think we realized then, or a fading generation, that we would be. That we, we were the last in the long line of uh, young boys that were taught by men that had to, to work every day with their hands, that had to, to hunt for a living. Uh, for food on the table, uh, for self, self-made men that knew, had all these skills. And Jeff was surpassed me by, by far. He was just a great hunter, a great sportsman, uh, an amazing athlete and a gentleman. And, uh, and, and soft-spoken. Uh, but if you got him mad, um, you're, you're in big trouble. You know, I, I, I did a lot of things. Uh, Jeff's, Jeff was my, my cousin, my older cousin. Let's see, one... Two, three, wow, four. Four of us have passed away now. Suddenly I'm kind of the oldest male on both sides of my family, um, which is a little strange because I'm not that old. Um, yeah, but I and Jeff did a lot of things together, especially when we were young, but we spent... Actually, I spent more time with him when I got older, um, working out in the Great Salt Lake. They had a construction company, and, and Jeff was... Uh, one of the foremans, uh, and he he ran things a lot and did the logistics a lot after his, after his, uh, my uncle got a little older. He was an amazing guy. We we always had fun. We always managed to have fun on whatever construction project we was on. The Great Salt Lake is is an amazing place, especially then when it was much higher, more water out there. You'd have these just mind blowing storms. When you're out, you know, we build these dikes way out into the Great Salt Lake. It's quite a large, or was quite a, a large body of water. 20, 30 feet deep, we build these large dikes out into the middle of the lake, uh, settling ponds for different minerals and things. And these big uh, articulated dump trucks. Um, I did have a chance to drive mining trucks, some of them were over 50 tons, the Terex trucks, but these are smaller. And uh, I think they were 20 tons, I don't remember for sure. So we'd, we'd build these dikes out, uh, way out into the lake, and we'd get these tremendous storms. And, uh, or you'd go to sleep on these long shifts, and sometimes you'd drive off. <laughs> it, was, it was a cool job. And I got to know the Great Salt Lake well, which later on led to my going out on the Great Salt Lake. I have previous episodes about that, where I spent, when I was in the Army, I'd had time off, and I would just go out and 
walk, physically walk out into the Great Salt Lake Desert, which is uh, pretty immense. Uh, even today, some of it is largely unknown, I'm pretty sure. Because you, you have to walk it, there's just not roads. And so it's, that was uh, sort of the launch off, because I drive all day long on these dikes, 12 hours long. And I look out on the Great, you know, the Great Salt Lake, which is immensely beautiful. Ugh. And I would see these places, and I, 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 you know, I grew up around the Great Salt Lake. The Bear River Bird Refuge, which at the time was the world's largest bird refuge in terms of all the different types of uh, birds from all the world that would come to the Great Salt Lake, still attracts these uh, all kinds of different sorts of rare uh, birds. So I grew up around the Great Salt Lake, and I grew up on the edges of the Great Salt Lake Desert. But uh, I never actually went out and walked, I mean, circumnavigated the Great Salt Lake Desert until uh, several years later, uh, for days and weeks, months, and got to know this amazing place. If you ever are interested in hearing more about sort of the mystical end of those uh, experiences, those journeys, a little bit of them anyway, I did a two-hour episode early on called uh, The Blood Red Moons of August. But shifting back to my, to my, my good friend, Jeff, because I always call him my friend and my brother because I kind of... Uh, he was, he was all those things. He, was, he wasn't just blood-wise my cousin. He was a, a really close friend, and he was a mentor. And uh, we just we spent a lot of our boyhoods together when he would come, uh, come from uh, Grantsville, Utah, over to Garland, because I lived the early part of my life and my childhood. My grandparents raised me most of the time. And uh, so I was there a lot. And so when Jeff would come, we'd go out and go on. The, we always went on adventures. One thing about me and Jeff is, and I, I kept up with this to this day, is we'd go out there on these mystical, like, Lord of the Ring adventure, <laughs> adventures or, 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 or pre-hunting trips. You know, Jeff always had a pellet gun or a BB gun, and he was always a great marksman. And, uh, but he always, we always had a sense of adventure. And so, and then and our, our grandfather, who uh, was a really good-looking guy, six feet tall, athletic, uh, a well-known community figure. If you watch 1940s movies, uh, Garland was the was the. We could use that town for the example because it was a classic 1940s town. I don't think it's much like that now. I haven't been back in a long time, but it really was. It was the the little American town, you know, the classic American town of, of the golden years of of World War II, pre-World War II. My and Jeff were younger. Uh, in fact, they used to have a, a whistle that blew at noontime at the uh, the fire station, which was next to the barber shop there in Garland. And that was left over from the World War II years. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, and so they'd, they'd blow that. And there was a factory whistle that you could hear from the, the sugar plant, which, is, which employed a lot of people at that time period. I don't even know if it's still there. It was a really interesting place, and my, so my grandpa had was was the was the barber in town, and so all the different men, especially the the, the war veterans, would come into the barber shop as they got their haircuts, and then they would share all their hunting stories and then their their combat stories, uh, which I never realized when I got older I would be one of those guys. Their stories were fascinating. I think there was a couple of people actually went to Normandy. And they told about, you know, landing on the beaches. And uh, that was just, I can't even imagine. I, there's been movies made about that, but to sit and listen 
to these guys was, was amazing. And then some of the newer, younger guys, these were 22, 23 years old, had just come home from Vietnam. And they would share some of their stories. And then and there was, at that time, uh, mid-70s, early 80s, I think were, were the World War I veterans. Um, and my, my, my great-grandfather on my dad's side was a, a World War uh, I veteran, uh, both two great-grandfathers on my, on my dad's side. Uh, my great, uh, one of my great-grandpas was in combat in, in France and, and just got really messed up. My, my other grandfather uh, was in the Navy, and uh, actually there were some naval battles, I guess. I don't know much about it. But these, these guys were, uh, yeah, mid-70s, early 80s in, and they had a pretty clear memory. It was fascinating to listen to actual World War I vets, veterans uh, that had been in combat in France, and to listen to these guys. And then the, the barbershop, and then we listened to boxing matches on the radio. Snow's right into Liston's face and standing on his tiptoes to make that inch and a half look like three. Yeah, he's trying his best for psychological warfare. Play with the left of the nose and play with the left of the cheek. It's play so far. Here's Liston missing a long left lead. Liston, Bob, please. Play with the right left of the nose. Play with a left and a right attack. A left and a right and another left and a right by Clay. And Liston, blink. Here's Liston hit with a right to the ear. Play with a left and a right. Look out, Cassius. He's throwing left hands. And now Liston throws the left of the body. And it was Cassius play with a half a dozen escorted blows. And they keep on fighting for 20 seconds. That's the end of round one. My grandfather was good friends with uh, the middleweight champion Gene Fulmer, who I think was from West Jordan, Utah, I, I, I can't remember, but he actually beat Sugar Ray Robinson, who's considered one of the greatest boxers in the, ever. Um, I think it went back and forth, but uh, yeah, my, my grandfather knew him, had an autograph, a couple autograph photos of him up on the mirror when he would cut people's hair, and, and the radio, it was an old radio, like a 1930s radio, <laughs> it's a tube radio that was down below the the uh, the picture of Gene Fulmer, and that's the one we would listen to sporting events, baseball games, and boxing matches, and and uh, you know, just you know there was a lot of community radio stations back then. This is before the the internet when you had instant news. You know, my grandfather was a huge uh, boxing fan, as it was everyone, and occasionally we'd listen to boxing matches on the radio. If my grandpa he'd work into the late hours, sometimes he'd have a lot of people to cut their hair. Maybe I should uh, try and uh, at least lay out how this the, the barbershop looked. It was it's pretty amazing. Um, it had stuff from before World War One in there, relics and stuff. It was on the corner of uh, Main Street there in Garland, Utah. It's an older Art Deco brick building that was next to a a, a bank that went out of uh, been closed. Another friend of my grandpa's, he was, that guy was in his 90s. He was pre-World War I, um, and, and he passed away uh, when I was just a boy still. And then next to that was the uh, fire station. Uh, and then across the street uh, was the drugstore that I and Jeff used to go to after we had swept my grandpa's floors and listened to the old-timers <laughs> call them. Uh, we weren't going to play baseball or... Or with jacks and a ball. I don't. We did all kinds of things. You know, you did the jacks and you throw the ball up and you grab the jacks and, and you know, we we did. There's all kinds of things that we did and, and eventually we just go over to the drugstore. But the inside of this barbershop was amazing. It had um, these uh, 
Art Deco floors that were tiled, uh, individual little tiles with designs that were pretty, pretty amazing. I know that floor because I swept it so many times with the with these brooms my grandpa had, and then, and Jeff did as well. He's always bigger than me, uh, but we'd follow each other around the barber shop. And there's all these uh, old wooden chairs that would line these big windows that looked out on Main Street, and uh, you could see uh, that whole downtown part of uh, Garland and the old movie theater over there that I used to go to movies to for uh, years. Those are where I seen my first legitimate uh, 35 millimeter movies. Uh, and uh, that was cool. And I and Jeff would go to movies there sometimes. And I think uh, our, our younger, his younger brother, Mike, Mike was a few years uh, younger than me. Um, and uh, we'd go to the movies there. But the inside of the barbershop was amazing. It had these, uh, all the, uh, had antelope up there and deer and elk. So a lot of these um, animals that my grandfather had shot and people in his family, they would mount the heads. They still do this at Zuni. Uh, the Zuni tribe in New Mexico, these are considered their ancestors. These deer, they're very attached to deer. Deer is a very sacred animal here in the Southwest. Uh, not only is it food, but it's considered an ancestor. So when I went to Zuni and went to the, the great Shalako ceremony, which hundreds of Thousands of people, and I guess there's 10,000 people in that village. They'd have all these, these, and they have a really beautiful way of do a mounting heads because these are their ancestors. They're very sacred, so they put all their jewelry on them and all these beautiful paintings. It's one of the most beautiful ceremonies in the world. But the, there's these these mounted heads of of antelope and deer. The, the prize kills because. Um, they, you know, this is a principal food of Zuni for, for thousands of years. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'd be reminded often of my grandpa's barbershop because he'd had all these wonderful heads of deer and antelope and elk that had been hunted. And these were trophy heads. So these were amazing uh, mounts. Uh, and so they'd be up on the walls and then all these posters. There was some uh, uh, paintings as well. One was a print. It's quite, it's quite a collector's item now. Uh, from the early 1950s, I think Anheuser-Busch put it out, of Custard's Last Stand. Uh, I just was in an antique store. I was just talking to Jeff about this, <laughs> you know, the, uh, and uh, we were just talking about this. Uh, my grandfather had this very large print uh, in a beautiful oak frame. It was, a, it was quite large. I don't know, 40 by... <laughs> by 18 or something like it was big and he had this large print of this very famous painting of custard's last stand it's very graphic i mean when i was a kid it, it's shockingly graphic and people getting scalped and getting uh, stabbed and, and, and arrows in their backs and, and, and custard fighting and, and um it's just it's, it's quite bloody actually it, it, it's it's uh, shocking for a little boy, but it kind of got used to it. But it was very colorful. It was a beautiful painting of of that place, you know, where where the battle took place, and it's it's very detailed and hundreds of different uh, soldiers and, and indigenous Native Americans, and I mean, it's a war. And having been in a war, whoever did that painting knew all about war and combat. It's just it was pretty powerful. And, and, and extremely colorful and bright and uh, I don't want to say yeah you know it's kind of beautiful uh, and then the sun setting and there's custard you know with this 
his blonde hair uh, and, and fighting this uh, chief or something. I don't know. It's, you know, it's a little one-sided, but, <laughs> you know, so, so what? And, you know, my, my, my grandfather had grown up on what, what we, you know, what we, what we white people uh, uh, call the frontier. Uh, you know, a lot of people um, lived here before, the, you know, the settlers came, so... <laughs> But the frontier was those very early days. I mean, uh, Clarkston, where my grandpa's family was from, was uh, was a fort. Uh, they had to protect themselves. Uh, they, you know, I don't want to go into <laughs> details because um, depending on what side you're on, if you're on the Native American side or on the white side, it can it gets a little iffy on, on what was going on and what wasn't going on. But it was a very critical time. It was a harsh time. People starved a lot. Uh, they were learning about agriculture. Uh, indigenous people were starving, and, and it, the winters were heavy. And, uh, so, but Native American was a, you know, I mean, with me, it's an everyday thing. I go to the tribes, for God's sakes. I live and stay uh, on, on, the, in, on the reservations. But in those days, it was something that, you know, is, is happening all the time. Little Indian squamishes, little what we call wars. Some of them end up being massacres. Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And so, my, you know, it's something my grandfather was not unfamiliar with because his grandfather and his great-grandfather were very connected to that time period. And so, um, yeah, and there's, there's a couple of other land, beautiful landscape paintings that were up. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you had the middle of this floor that we have to sweep the hair that got cut, I and Jeff. Beautiful tiled floor, and then all these wooden chairs against these big, huge windows that overlooked Main Street and a little down. You know, Garden was a very small town, um, so um, and it was it was very very scenic. It was right there on the corner. It was just it was something out of a, a Hooper painting. You know, <laughs> colorful and beautiful, and it's it's not. I you know I've been back since. I was talking to Jeff about this, and he's went back since. It's. It's not like that anymore. Things have, have changed a lot. The, the golden years have, have faded away. But we, I and Jeff got the very last bit of that. And that barbershop was the key place. That's where everybody came and talked about everything, whether they were getting a, a haircut or not. And there was a big, large mirror, uh, uh, a, a double crystal glass mirror, I believe. It was very expensive. Mounted behind the people who were getting there. There was two uh, barbershop chairs. Uh, and, and then there was one for a little a little person. You know, you could really, you could like pump it up so it'd go real high and you could put a little person there. And then there was even one, he had a smaller chair for even smaller kids that you could put in the two larger barber chairs. But behind them was this, this beautiful large mirror. Uh, and it, it, was, it was very uh, creative and artistic. Very, and it was an art deco mirror. It would take the whole wall up so you could see the, you could see everybody sitting in their chairs, and you could see the, the, the head of the person getting their hair cut the, behind it, and you could spin the barber chair around, and you know, my grandfather was dressed in the, with, a, you know, with a white, almost medical-like smock, you know, and, and he'd wash his hands, and he had the talc powder, and he was, and he and actually shave your, uh, the back of your neck with a straight-edge razor, uh, and, and he would shave men, too, after their haircuts with this straight-edge razor, and he'd have the, the leather sharpener that ran down the side. I mean, this guy, he, he, was, he, could, he was quite good at it. Um, he was a, an amazing barber. He went to barber school in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he learned in the camps, the mining camps. 
he would go and cut uh, people's hair when he was going to barber school. And those are his first jobs, I believe. He, he played on a, the Kennecott Copper baseball team and, then, and several other amateur baseball teams. He was a, he was a standout. My, you know, Jeff that just passed away was a lot like my grandpa. Uh, and uh, they, they, had, uh, they were similar in a lot of ways, although Jeff was much bigger than him. But uh, they were standout athletes, and, and they just, they're just, their personalities were a lot the same. So my grandpa would cut this hair, some, you know, starting early in the morning, I think it's 7 o'clock. He'd start cutting hair, and some days he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop cutting hair. This is in the summer until, I don't remember any clothes, 10 o'clock? I mean, it was still maybe 9. It was still, it was dark outside, and he had these long, these beautiful light bulbs that hang off the ceiling in, in addition to the, uh, to the Art Deco lights with the cover. Art Deco is amazing. And you should look that up if you don't know what I'm referring to. So he had these bigger lights up in the ceiling, and then he'd have these uh, smaller lights that would hang down with the barber chairs. And, and then these men would come in, you know, that had different jobs now. They'd been in wars and, 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 and had been to different places all over the world. I mean, the barbershop was a place that people not only gossiped, but they came and told the stories of their lives. And my grandpa was an incredible listener. I never knew anybody. <laughs> he didn't talk a lot. He'd share a few stories. Uh, not that I know of, a little bit, but he loved to listen to people. And you know, Jeff was a lot like that. I never knew Jeff to really, I had to really push him to get stories out of him sometimes because he just wasn't he was a very egotistical person. He could have been. His accomplishments were amazing, as were my grandfather's. But he, he my grandfather, you know, and Jeff got this from me, he, he liked to listen to people. And, and there's, so there's all these dialogues going on. And, and amazing time in the United States, World War I and World War II. And I, you know, I'm just a small boy. Kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Uh, you know, sometime, and, and when, I, when I, well, my family came back from the Midwest and I went and, I went and stayed with my grandparents again, they, they raised me a lot of the time I and my sister. I spent a lot of my youth growing up, even up into high school, I would go, I'd still go there. I wouldn't help my grandpa out as much because he got older and he didn't have that barber shop. And later on, Jeff's dad built a smaller little, brought a little uh, portable uh, barber shop that he could cut hair in. But those classic days were amazing. And it, it was just this, and there's all these newspapers and comic books. There were magazines from all, all over. My grandpa had a, a subscription to everything. And if it didn't, then people brought that stuff. And so I really got connected to the world. Uh, people had been all over the world and, and, and soldiers and, and, and the gossip, you know, you get to hear all that stuff. Uh, some of it was true, some of it wasn't. You know, Garland was a small town and it was a, it was a place where everybody stopped and even if they didn't get their hair cut, they said hello. So I and Jeff, uh, would, we were around that all the time and you got to hear that. And there was just amazing sto storytellers. Uh, Jeff's dad, uh, you know, my, my uncle Daryl was was a was a master storyteller, and and, and he would come in the barbershop. <laughs> he would tell all of his amazing stories that were always, you know, very funny. He was a very accomplished athlete. He'd went to high school at Bear High School, which is the little high school in Garland, out just outside of Garland. That's where everybody in the in the surrounding communities and smaller towns went to high school. When I 
when I was in high school, the, these guys were in, in Boxelor High School in, in Brigham City. We still wrestled and played football with this the smaller uh, Bear River High School. Uh, they they were one of our arch rivals. <laughs> the, you know, this is where my mom went to school. And this is where my uncle Daryl, Jeff's dad, went to school, and my aunt Colleen, her brother, and uh, the it's just just amazing. But this barber shop was was unbelievable. This was the early internet. This is where you got connected, but you weren't in the digital environment. You're with really, real physical people, and and some of these, I, you know, some of these guys had been. Uh, it was amazing, and, and and some of them had memories of early uh, Mormon culture there. That's uh, when it was first settled. Um, these guys were uh, they were pioneers. You know, they'd come into the valley. Uh, and learned a lot of things through trial and error, and there's still indigenous and Native American tribes that were still partially, as we used to call them, wild. <laughs> the Shoshone, and uh, um, yeah, it, it, it was just an amazing place. And so, it, nights in particular would be just beautiful. So, you know, I, I and Jeff, and, and sometimes my, Michael would be there. And we would just sit and, and and listen to all these amazing stories. But it was it always seemed like I and Jeff hung out a lot. Um, we just and you know, it was, I don't think it's a time it'll ever return. Uh, it was you didn't have to have a book because you got these things firsthand to see people, to see the way they dressed, and you know everywhere from from the hippies that were starting to come in, you know, the 1960s, uh, and that you know some of those people would come into the shop too. So. You know the 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 love machines, the flowered vans, all you know. It's just they were, and, and then at that in contrast with these these gentlemen, all had short hair and they and and they were dressed nicely. And and some of the old cowboys and ranchers had come in. You know they've been out there, and it's just it was a marvelous place only to see uh, time periods and to hear different sorts of dialogues and traditions, uh, but to just connect to people and histories and, and, and ancestral base knowledge that natives have you know they say that's very important not to not to read it and hear it as much to, to directly connect to the histories of the wars and and the histories of people that came into the area and so uh, my grandfather's barbershop was an amazing place and uh, it was a it was a starting point for me uh, and what what history was all about because it was more of a living thing. I didn't read it so much out of books or go to school. You actually heard it from the people firsthand when they'd come into the barber shop and, and get their haircuts or just, just to talk. And we and then the men would talk about different some people actually <laughs> talk about Jack Dempsey fight. The Gene Tunney and Jan, Jack Dempsey fight and the long famous long count. Sonny has yet not shot a ball. The film is famously shown in slow motion. The sequence begins nearly a minute into the seventh round. As he had done throughout the fight, challenger Jack Dempsey advanced toward heavyweight champion Gene Tunney. As Tunney throws a left, Dempsey counters with a right that catches Tunney to the head. Tunney, phased by the punch, fails to see Dempsey's looping left hook and straight right. Both punches connect, and Tunney is staggered. He falls to the ropes, where Dempsey continues his attack. Tunney's knees give way under a crushing left hook, 
and Wright sends the champion to the canvas. Dempsey wrote later that he hit Tony with all the punches he'd been throwing in his sleep over the previous year. Referee Dave Barry gestures for Jack to follow the rules and go to a neutral corner, but Jack doesn't notice. Dempsey walks directly behind Tony. Then finally looking up, he complies with Barry and steps away. Barry delays the count. At least a few seconds go by, or for many boxing fans, a near eternity. The referee turns towards the fallen champion and ignoring the call of the timekeeper, restarts the count at one. Through the count, Tony sits up, holding the middle rope. At three, he glances up at the referee. Otherwise, Tony is still. His condition is a mystery. At eight, Tony pulls his feet under and stands at nine. For the remaining two minutes of round seven, Tony retreats, unsteady at times, with Dempsey in pursuit, charging and swinging mostly at the air in front of Tony's head. Dempsey tries again and again to trap the champion, but Tony manages to stay just out of reach. Now, my great-grandfather uh, on my dad's side, uh, Henry Hartley, who I, I knew, uh, kind of, he used to take me around in his truck, he actually grew up with Jack Dempsey in, in Manassas, Colorado, the, the short time that Jack's family was there. My uh, great-great-grandma, actually delivered Jack Dempsey. She was one of the main midwives in the San Luis Valley, both for uh, the Hispanic communities, the native communities, and the Mormon communities, because there was a, those three uh, enclaves of culture there coming together. And she was one of the main major midwives, and one of the babies she delivered was, was, the, was Jack Dempsey, the great boxer. And my uh, great Grandpa, Henry Hart, how he made his money was he was a boxer. He'd go to these mining communities and camps all over the uh, southwest and then up into Montana, and he would make money prize fighting. And that was a, a rough job. And that's kind of what you did during the Depression. Uh, my great-grandfather, growing up with Jack Dempsey, they were close friends, uh, even uh, sparred with each other when just before Jack Dempsey became a world champion. Uh, and uh, they were good friends. And, and so there's that side. And then going back to, to, to Jeff and, and my, my mother's father, my grandpa on my mother's side, um, just he was a, an, amazing, an amazing person. Uh, these are well-mannered people. These are people that had a lot of etiquette, that lived very poor often and, and got every inch of, of what, they, what they earned. He was a gentleman, always. And uh, Jeff kind of picked that up. Jeff was the most, I think, like my grandfather in, in a lot of ways. Just well-mannered, kind, uh, watched his words, kind of soft-spoken. Uh, and, and he was kind of held to deal with if you made him mad. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was interesting to see those generations come into the barber shop and listen to them tell their war stories, real war stories, uh, tell about uh, the, the Great Depression, uh, tell about uh, World War II and coming home from World War II. Uh, and I and Jeff would sit and listen to this. And Jeff had his, 
his red Gransfeld baseball hat, hat on. He was a pitcher at the World Series, the um, Little League World Series, and I think they won. Jeff was an exceptional athlete, not just in baseball, football, and whatever, in basketball, whatever he chose to do. He's a good coach, too. But he was also a, a beautiful friend, and everything was always an adventure with I and Jeff. Even when we got older, we did a lot of <laughs> crazy things. And, 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 and so I, I miss him. I didn't know that this uh, this broadcast would uh, would be would be about Jeff because I'm pretty private about some of those things. Especially, uh, I have shared. Uh, you know, it's been it's been a hard time because uh, my my dear girlfriend uh, that I love so much she just passed away in October, and now suddenly uh, one of my closest friends has passed away. Uh, n- none of us expected it. And so, yeah, I just kind of naturally went. I, I, naturally went into that in this in this broadcast and so um yeah i love you jeff uh, i'm grateful to have you as a friend and, and a cousin and a part of my family and your memory your exceptional memory for the past is going to be missed because that's really where we had a lot of heart together is we could remember a lot of things and and they're they're fading away all the the old golden years of america <laughs> where they're going are pretty much gone but we got the tail end of that and Jeff was always had a very keen memory, and he could really bring up stories and situations that um, that I'd forget the details in a lot of times. And uh, and then just a great—he's a great friend, a close friend. And and when you lose people like that, you lose these people. They—it's—it's—it's it's, it's hard on you. There's a sudden hole there that um, a gap in between things that you didn't realize. You didn't realize how important they were and how substantial they were. And so it's, it's been tough, especially with Tiva passing away. <laughs> and one of my closest friends is gone, and I never expected it. You know, I thought Jeff would live to be old. He's a pretty young guy still. Had a whole life in front of him, I thought. So this railroad song is indicative of Jeff, indicative of a time passing. Uh, there's not cabooses anymore. I mean, Jeff used to watch him all the time. The conductor in the back of the caboose would watch the train. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, there were still hobos, uh, not the crazy straight people that ride them now. There were hobos, these beautiful people that would ride the train with their dogs, and you could talk to them. And I and Jeff talked to a few of them, and it was just—it was a great time. So, uh, yeah, Jeff, I miss you. Uh, uh, I just can't—I can't believe that you passed away. Uh, yeah, it's—it's—you weren't even that old, buddy. I'm kind of—I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> Sounds like you, you got to go before me, and so the world's a lot emptier place, and I didn't realize that uh, we're a part of a fading generation, my friend. So, uh, I love you, miss you, uh, I'm not sure I can really <clears throat> um, stand in your shoes, but uh, I'm going to try, brother, a little bit. Illinois Central, Monday morning rail, 15 cars restless riders three conductors 25 sacks of mail all along the southbound odyssey the train pulls out of Kankakee and rolls along past houses farms and fields passing trains that have no name freight yards full of old black men and the graveyards of the rusted automobiles Good morning America, how are you?
This is In Between Stations Radio. 